Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies that operates online through the New Books Network. In this podcast, we talk to authors of exciting and important new books in the broader field of Islamic studies. In the last few decades, questions relating to Islam's compatibility with liberal secular democracy or the question of why Islam remains incompatible with Western liberal norms of thought and politics have generated considerable commentary in both scholarly and journalistic communities. Among the central assumptions driving such compatibility talk relates to Islam's allegedly inherent incapacity for critique, a virtue often heralded as a signature achievement and characteristic of liberal secularism. Irfan Ahmed's new book, Religion as Critique, Islamic Critical Thinking from Mecca to the Marketplace, represents a devastating indictment of this dominant liberal assumption that Islam is inimical to critique. Turning this assumption on its head, Ahmed combines historical, textual, and ethnographic methods to argue that critique is and has always been central to Muslim intellectual thought and lived practice. The distinctive feature of this book is the way it fluctuates the camera of analysis between a genealogy of Western liberal discourses of critique as a way to puncture their universality and inevitability while bringing into view alternate logics and imaginaries of critique in Muslim thought and practice, past and present. Eminently readable, this book will be widely discussed and debated in multiple fields, including religious studies and Islamic studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Irfan Ahmed. Hello, Irfan. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. <clears throat> How are you? Wonderful. Uh, Irfan, thank you so much for your time and for this uh, really incredible uh, book that uh, uh, talks to multiple fields, including uh, South Asian Islam, Islamic studies, more broadly speaking, and to critical thought, uh, uh, more generally speaking. So thank you so much for this book. We have a tradition on uh, new books in Islamic studies, where our first question is always biographical. Uh, Irfan, could you share a bit with our listeners uh, how you became a scholar of Islam and Muslim societies. Could you share a bit with us about your uh, intellectual uh, journey? Oh, intellectual journey. Okay, this is a relevant question, but perhaps too early to account for it. But let me try to answer your question. Uh, I was born in a small village of Bihar in North India, where uh, there was no electricity, no metal road, uh, no proper government school. And it was by and large a peasant society. So in addition to being an auditor in a bank, my father was a farmer. So much of our life as a child revolved around land, farming, rice, wheat, flood, and so on. So I went to a madrasa in my own village, and I studied until class six uh, in that madrasa. It was later on that I moved to Patna, which was the capital of, of Bihar. So I did my intermediate studies there, and then for bachelor's and MPhil, I moved to uh, Delhi, 
and I did my study at Jamia Millia Islamia and Jawaharlal Nehru University. So at JNU, where I did my MPhil, actually I was uh, interested in the issues of peasantry. In fact, I remember taking a course which was called Peasant Sociology, and I wrote a paper about peasants and Bihar. That time, the question that I had was uh, like, why uh, in North Bihar, where I came from, there is no peasant movement, whereas in Central Bihar, uh, there was a strong, uh, a strong uh, peasant movement. Now, while I was interested in this question of uh, peasants in a rural setting, I came to study some issues like, you know, the Permanent Settlement Act of India, which was, you know, introduced in by the British government in 1793. And then it occurred to me the question of uh, peasantry uh, or the economic question is also related to religion. So for example, 1793 Permanent Settlement Act, it was not simply an economic issue, it was equally a religious one. As you know, uh, it led to the creation of new zamindars who were mostly Hindus and the peasantry was mostly uh, Muslims. So likewise, you know, the question of Urdu, it was often viewed as linguistic question, or a question of religion, namely that Urdu was equated with Muslims and Hindi with Hindus. And of course it was wrong, but it appeared to me that it was no less an economic question. For example, uh, in post-independence India, what would the Urdu speakers do? Will they get a job or not? So at that time, I had not formulated it clearly but I was dissatisfied with this neat classification of something called economy separate from religion or politics and vice versa. Now, the time in which I did my master's and MPhil, um, this was the time of uh, mid uh, 90s and late 90s. And there were also political issues of Islam's alleged intolerance to other religions and Hinduism's so-called innate tolerance. This was the time of if you recall, Hindutva movement, which uh, you know illegally demolished Babri Masjid, and there were also issues of Islamophobia as manifest at that time in the novel of Lajja by Taslima Nasreen. This, of course, was prefaced by Salman Rushdie's Saranic Voices, and connect that national Indian scene with international relations, where people like Huntington had made Islam as the new enemy of the new world order. And Huntington's thesis to note did not emerge out of the blue. It was a reflection of century-old Western scholarship, which in some ways was also institutionalized in academic disciplines and various uh, other uh, domain of knowledge. So across the board, not only in the media discourses, but also in mainstream academic discourses, Islam was depicted as hostile to critique, peace, pluralism, Muslims were perceived to have, uh, Muslims were perceived not to have an intellectual capacity to debate and discussion. And that they have a tradition of critique of their own was almost unthinkable. So such views went against what I had learned at Madrasa, what my elders and family members had taught us. 
My father uh, actually taught us to be very critical. He read uh, Ghalib, uh, Iqbal, Jamil Mazhari. He also had a few books in English. So while doing my field work for my first book on Jamaat Islami, I met many people who were critical of Maududi. There were critiques within Jamaat as well. And yes, Maududi himself was no less critical. So what I found during my field work and what I experienced as an individual, however, did not have any voice in much of the academic literature. It was almost absent, unrecognized. In fact, the idea of critique within Islam was an unthought. So the project of the book is as much about Islam and Muslim society as it is a general scholarly pursuit, a pursuit about what is unthought, underthought, and overthought, and not just about Muslims, but about the entangled lives of people of my, of many faiths, or perhaps no faith. So this probably is a little bit uh, long response, but this is how I see my journey. Terrific, wonderful. Uh, uh, if you've already begun to talk a bit about uh, the central themes of uh, this book as part of this intellectual journey that you just uh, beautifully outlined for us. Uh, but perhaps you could uh, say a bit more. I mean, the title of this book is Religion as Critique, Islamic Critical Thinking from Mecca to the Marketplace, uh, which is a very interesting and intriguing title. And when someone reads this book, of course, they understand what, what you're after here. But could you share with our listeners a bit how this title sort of captures the central argument uh, that you pursue uh, in this project, uh, building on what you were already saying in response to the last question? Sure. <clears throat> So it occurred to me like, you know, unlike most books on Islam, which accepts uh, the terms and axioms of social sciences and then proceed to write about Islam, what religion as critique does is to first examine the larger premise of social science and then investigate the subject of Islam and Muslim tradition. Put differently, it is my contention that a thorough study of Islam must also integrate the very conceptual and academic space in which the study of Islam has been placed and pigeonholed rather as a distinct field. That is to say, a study of Islam should also say something about the study of religion in general. So to be sure, the book deals with Islam and Muslim cultures. However, there is a much larger premise, namely critique is part of other religious traditions too. So, if you recall, in the book, I discuss how Gautam Buddha was a critic, how Buddha critiqued Brahmanism of his own time, and how he mounted a critique of ritualized hierarchy. Of course, in Islamic tradition, prophets in general had been viewed as reformers, their task being the reform of society. Thus, Moses, Christ, Muhammad are critiques from the perspective of this book. So these examples are more from the past. To take a more contemporary example, uh, you know, uh, Tony Abbott was the Prime Minister of Australia. And as you may know, I taught in Amsterdam University, uh, in Australian universities for nine years. Uh, Tony Abbott was a deeply religious person. He's a Christian in a televised show. And audience asked him, and let me recall what was the question. It was something like this. When it comes to asylum seekers, what would Jesus do? And then Tony Abbott's uh, reply was very curious. He said, 
and this again uh, went something like this he said uh, Jesus was the best man who ever lived but that doesn't mean that Jesus said yes to everyone meaning those who want to come to Australia now Abbott's reply showed how he read Jesus and Jesus and his life to justify ethnic policy of the Australian state in a way it was similar to Christians using the Bible to justify conquest and racism but we also know that Christians use the Bible to contest slavery likewise many Christians critiqued Abbott for misusing uh, Jesus in many ways Gandhi also critiqued Hinduism through Hinduism however <clears throat> in my view like Abbott's Gandhi's critique was ultimately at the service of the nation state in contrast critique by Muslim also showed the limits and the dark underbelly of nation state so to return to your question the title makes a general claim about religion and critique the subtitle illustrates that general claim by focusing on Islam and in so doing it combines insights from anthropology philosophy studies of religion and other disciplines and it shows how the ideas and practices of critique historically as well as contemporaneously have worked in Islamic tradition uh, one of the most uh, the biggest uh, strengths of this book as you mentioned was that it is not only about Islam but also about the conceptual space in which the study of Islam takes place and uh, one of the central arguments that you make in the book uh, has to do with the enlightenment and uh, uh, you, you make the argument that the enlightenment was a local ethnic project uh, whereby its forms of reason and critique have been assumed to be universal but uh, uh, in fact, it was a process of uh, 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 positing and pitting a series of others, including Islam. Uh, so could you share with our listeners some key aspects of this argument, how you puncture the universality of the Enlightenment as uh, the universal form of reason and critique? Uh, could you say a bit about this aspect of the argument? That is a great question and, and thanks for asking it. Uh, the way I will respond to this is as follows. <clears throat> You see, uh, the doxa or the common sense has it that the Western Enlightenment was a landmark in, in human history. And normatively speaking, it was also regarded as a wonderful achievement because it is uh, believed that it inaugurated rationality, freedom, tolerance, democracy, secularity, and what have you. And also the assumption that it was universal. So if you see, then enlightenment is not simply an idea, it is also an idea. That is, society and cultures which did not have it must also have it to, qual to qualify as a candidate to be accepted in the global hierarchy of cultures. So this uh, usual linear, linear story goes something like this, that first there was Renaissance, which led to reformation, and then the reformation led to enlightenment. But the question is, is it really the case? I have not seen any study that convincingly shows how logically and causatively the Renaissance led to reformation and reformation led to enlightenment. So at best, it seems to me, it is a story told again and again. Now, the method through which I reached my argument about the Enlightenment as ethnic project is very much Nietzschean and Talal Asadian. 
I begin with the present and trace its linkages and connection back to the past and in this case to the 18th century. So <clears throat> if we begin with the present, two uh, events in 20th century and 21st century are crucial. One is, of course, the war on terror. And this was justified in many writings by invoking the Enlightenment. And you had native informants like Salman Rushdie or Farid Zakaria, who spoke about the need for Islam's reformation, enlightenment, or liberalism. You could also think of Christopher Hitchens, though, in a different way. Now, before the war on terror, of course, there was a Cold War. And American scholars like, you know, Edward Shields, they mobilized the Enlightenment as ethnic marker of the so-called free world against its then enemy, namely communism and the USSR. So what we see here is the following. In both War on Terror and the Cold War, the Enlightenment was mobilized inimically to set friends apart from the enemy. And this, in my reading, was also the case in 18th century and with Immanuel Kant, who is regarded as the star philosopher of the Enlightenment. Now, of course, Kant's philosophy is very complex, but for our purpose here, he is credited with inaugurating a Copernican revolution in Western philosophy. And central to this very act of philosophizing was to secure a firm ground. And in Kant, his project was to <clears throat> bring philosophy on a secure foundation. So the foundation cannot be marshy or shaky, it has to be firm. Now, if we take Kant as an example of the Enlightenment, which uh, many scholars uh, would have uh, agreement about, so what you see in the first edition of Critique of Pure Reason, Kant outlined a challenge to a rebuilding of metaphysics from those who he described as nom nomads. And the figure of nomad is important here because in Kant's view, nomads, they hate uh, all kinds of permanent uh, residence or what he called cultivation of the soil. Okay. Now, in the second edition, this nomadism is fought by drawing a proper boundary within which philosophy can thrive and it can uh, it can it can contest uncertainty. Now, the figure of nomadism in Kant is basically the Arabs and, and the Mongols, who, according to Kant, they nurture contempt for the town dwellers or the permanent residents. Now, that is, uh, that is to say, the Arabs become signifier of the nomad and the other of permanent residents. Along with these nomads, the danger to philosophy for Kant came from what he called enthusiasm, zeal, fanaticism, and sensuality. And Kant described Muhammad as a zealot. And this is a quote from him that zeal leads to zeal leads the zealot to the external, led Muhammad on to his princely throne. So in critique of practical reason, the figure of Muhammad again comes as a sign of unreason, nonsense, dream, or madness of imagination. So if Islam is anything for Kant, it is the triumph of revelation over reason. He even described uh, Islam as opiate 
reason-ridden, sense-dominated, and non-rational creed. So this is uh, more the conceptual uh, aspect of Kantian enlightenment. Now, uh, <clears throat> among the philosophers, there is some dispute as to what extent his uh, later work, which is called Anthropology from a Pragmatic Viewpoint, how important it is. Uh, generally, philosophers don't consider it important, but in my view, it is important, not simply because I'm an anthropologist. But this is a book where the figure of Muslim is, uh, is very uh, prominent. I mean, this is a book in which Kant describes the so-called characteristics of different peoples or nations. And as many have noted, it is uh, filled with racism of all sorts. Now, when it comes to Islam, in this book, uh, at one place, uh, Kant contrasts, for example, the good side with the worst side of the Spaniards, for example. And he explains the worst side of Spaniards in terms of having a non-European origin. Now, what is that non-European origin? And he himself explains, because the Spaniards uh, are from the mixture of European with the Arabian slash Moorish blood. In other words, Muslim blood in the Spaniards is responsible for their war side. Now, part of this book deals with, uh, as I said, uh, description of different nationalities and nations. Turks are excluded from the description because, according to Kant, uh, Turks never will attain what is necessary for the acquisition of a definite national character. So it is precisely in this sense that I argue that Kant and his enlightenment was uh, ethnic. Now, I just want to quickly say um, uh, a few words about uh, the French Enlightenment, because it is widely believed that French Enlightenment was more militantly against religion than, than the German one. And, and as you know, in the French Enlightenment, the French philosophers, uh, <clears throat> they directly attacked Islam, you know? Even though you do not have Muslims as a collectivity living in France. Now, the justification of this move is given as follows, that actually the French philosophers, they were not interested in Islam per se, but they did attack it. But what they did was basically to attack Christianity, but because of the censorship, they could not have attacked Christianity, therefore they attacked Islam, you know, uh, to, to avoid uh, censorship. Now, I think, to me, then the question would be, if that is the premise to, to go by institutionally, was the problem of 18th century Christianity similar to Islam? Or is the assumption that Islam is not a religion, but the religion, and therefore a critique of Islam is also a critique of religion at large? Or are Islam and Christianity substitutes, implying no difference between the two? Moreover, can the specificity of Christianity be translated into a generality which in turn is typified similarly in Islam? But also note that, you know, Voltaire, who is regarded as the key figure of French Enlightenment, uh, contrary to the common view, 
Voltaire was not opposed to religion in itself. Indeed, he was an enemy of atheism, and Voltaire was a believer. He believed in true Christianity. In critiquing the church, clergy, and orthodoxy, Voltaire's reference point was not reason stripped from tradition and religion. It was actually what he called uh, the opposite of the religion of Jesus. So what you see here, both in the German and French Enlightenment, Christianity was not uh, demolished. It was rather reconfigured. And in this reconfiguration, Islam was mobilized to serve as the other of Europe and reason. And therefore, uh, I describe uh, in the book Enlightenment as an ethnic uh, project. Terrific. Th thank you so much for that excellent and thorough answer, Irfan. Uh, so let's move to the second part of the, the uh, title, I guess, uh, of uh, Islamic critical thinking. And uh, I wanted to ask you specifically about the alternative uh, intellectual resources and uh, traditions of critique that you mine and that you explore, especially from the South Asian uh, Muslim intellectual traditions by looking at uh, categories of critique from Urdu, etc. Could you share with our listeners a bit about these alternative resources from the South Asian Muslim uh, intellectual uh, tradition? Yes, yeah, sure. <clears throat> I think the uh, one way to, to address this question is also to, to bring uh, to listeners uh, one of the key premise of the Western thinking about it. As you know, the German-American philosopher Leo Strauss, he famously described Western philosophy as a tension between Athens and Jerusalem, meaning ancient Greece and the environment in which Christianity was born. Now, this yoking of Greece and Christianity together, uh, historians have described it as a very recent phenomenon going back to late 18th century, especially if you see the work of uh, this great work by Martin Bernard. Now, since all contemporary debates in social sciences and humanities more or less begin with modernity or the enlightenment, it occurred to me that an alternative ought to precede the enlightenment. And it is for this reason that I bring the axial age, which historians dated somewhere between 800 to 200 BC and discuss uh, in this context works of various scholars like Robert Balla, Karl Jaspers, and so on. So situating Islam in the frame of the reformulated axial age helps us move beyond both modernity and ancient Greece. So if prophets like Moses, Jesus, and Muhammad are critiques, as I argue, then our point of beginning are neither Europe nor Greece, and obviously not the Enlightenment. So the alternative that uh, emerges from the examination of Islamic tradition in South Asia, uh, in the book I describe it at length, but I think for the listeners, let me try to compress it in three terms. So the first one is, unlike the tension between Athens and Jerusalem that Leo Strauss Strauss has spoke about in Western philosophy in the Hejaz, which is uh, the area combining Makkah and Medina and Islamic tradition and large, there is no tension as such. What emerges is actually an anti-dualism, 
Muhammad's enterprise was not based on dualism between faith and reason or mind and heart. Instead, in Islamic tradition, they cohere together. So you see a simultaneity and coexistence of heart, reason, and mind. And in uh, among the ulama, uh, as well as uh, among the common people, you see the coexistence of heart and mind, you know, qalb, dil on the one hand and dimaq on the other. So instead of uh, both, you know, in Arabic and Urdu, uh, instead of splitting them apart, the, the term qalb actually encapsulates intellect and, and feelings. The second thing which emerges uh, from the examination of this Islamic tradition is that unlike the Enlightenment notion of critique as a right, uh, Muslims view critique as a practice seen in terms of duty, as a fart. So I'm not, you know, uh, positing as uh, uh, right and duty as opposite of each other, but of course there is uh, a significant dif difference in terms of emphasis. The third point of difference is that there is so much of um, emphasis in the Western Enlightenment tradition of critique on, on tongue, on, on, on saying, uh, and there is less on listening. But, but it also is related to the fact that in Islamic tradition, actually the intellect or the reason is not an independent entity in its own right, but it is something which is related to the qalb or the heart. And the locus of reason and intellect is qalb. So that you see the difference like, you know, uh, one of the examples that I give is if you look uh, at the prefaces or the introduction of books written in English, but in the West, uh, you always appeal to readers' uh, judgment uh, and reasoning. Whereas in Persian and Urdu tradition, uh, authors would appeal to the heart and the reason of, of their readers at the same time. So let us uh, now sh shift uh, to uh, one of the central protagonists of uh, this book, uh, Abul Ala uh, Maududi. And uh, you spend a lot of time thinking about uh, Maududi uh, as a political thinker and as a political critic. Uh, I know this is a, a big question. So again, I will uh, ask you to sort of uh, choose some examples from an analysis of how does critique uh, operate in uh, Maududi's uh, thought and writings and his political thought and writings and uh, how does your analysis of his thought complicate the way we usually understand and approach uh, Islamism uh, as a category? Yeah, so uh, this is, uh, <clears throat> this is uh, a very profound question. Um, look, uh, but let me uh, start by saying that even though I myself have used this term called Islamism, uh, but of course, it is a problematic term, you know. So, uh, let's see, Christians who make Christianity important to their politics are called Christian Democrats. 
And in Europe, you have, you know, Christian democratic parties who have been central, for example, to the politics of Germany, Italy, and the Netherlands. But they are simply called Christian Democrats. So the term is positive. Likewise, Hindus who make Hinduism central to their politics are called Hindu nationalist, you know. And that term is, of course, uh, you know, positive. Sometimes it is even more dignified, actually. In contrast, the term Islamism and Islamist rarely have a positive signification, you know. So discussing this way means accepting terminological asymmetry, you know. Now, with this qualification, I think what uh, I do in religion as critique is to refuse the description of Maududi as a fundamentalist or Islamist, which is the most uh, popular kind of description. And I instead, you know, put forward this idea that he should be viewed first and foremost as a political theorist. Uh, and I think to continue to call him a fundamentalist is, in my view, is an exercise in intellectual laziness. So if intellectual discussion and discourse on issues such as sovereignty, democracy, the state, pluralism, religion, and so on, are the stuff that belongs to the realm of political theory, then Modudi is surely one. Now, when you see Modudi from this angle, what emerges is that he is at once wedded to and critical of religious tradition and practices he inherited in the same way as he is receptive to and critical of modern developments and ideas like democracy, the state, and what have you. Uh, so my argument is that Madhudi is critical not because of European influence, which is not to say that he, he was not influenced, of course he was. So he's critical, not because of European influence, but because of his immersion into Islamic thoughts and, and, and practices. And the same, of course, goes for uh, his critiques, you know, which I deal with, uh, and they include people from a wide variety of locations, including some of his former followers, those who are not uh, from the Jamaat-e-Islami, but from outside, you know. But my attempt is to situate that uh, multiple critique within Islamic notion of 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 uh, critique and and Islam. So let us now shift the attention, as you mentioned earlier, also in response to this question that Madhudi also had his own uh, uh, critics or people who were critical of his uh, of his thought also. Uh, so, could you share with us a bit about how other scholars, especially other Muslim traditional scholars, the ulama, went about uh, critiquing uh, his, for example, conception of the state uh, and so on? Could you share with us a bit about the people who were critical of Maududi as part of your analysis of traditions of critique in South Asian uh, Islam? Yeah, sure. So this is this is a little bit uh, difficult question. So let me try to uh, sort of you know set it uh, in a frame. Uh, I mean, the earliest uh, critique of Modudi came from Deoband uh, or the ulama of Deoband. Uh, of course, ulama of Deoband uh, are described as uh, traditionalist. But we have to be careful about using this term as well uh, because let's be clear that, you know, the sense in which we use tradition now is itself decisively modern. There was no term like tradition in the so-called pre-modern or traditional era of society. You see, so tradition itself is, a, is, is, 
in some way enmeshed in the history of modernity. Now, one key critique from the traditionalist, and we use it uh, the term with some reservation, was that uh, Modudi was uh, intensely preoccupied with the business of the state. And the critique from the traditionalist was that uh, he presented Islam in such a way that a state became the pivot of uh, Islam in general. Uh, and related to this, the traditional uh, ulama, they critiqued Islam for neglecting uh, the aspect of his spirituality or Rouhanian, you know. Uh, so these were, I think, uh, two important critiques leveled by the traditionalist. And I see that there is some merit in this critique, no doubt. However, if you dig a little uh, deeper, it becomes apparent that the question is, uh, or the critique is more in terms of emphasis or a stress. So it is not that a spirituality was entirely absent from Maududi or his followers in the same way as, uh, as uh, the state was of no concern to the traditionalist. You know, no community or group can be oblivious of the state in contemporary times precisely because of the modern state impacts every domain of life. Yet, not all groups are equally concerned with the critique of or being part of the state. And this, in my view, has to also do with the nature of the state itself and if it allows for political expression of certain kinds or not. Now, as you mentioned earlier that uh, there are critics of Maududi within the Jamaat also and uh, you explore some of those uh, uh, vectors of critique and especially you focus on this very fascinating topic of uh, the critique of Maududi's conception of gender and gender roles uh, and you show that some of these critiques emerging from within the Jamaat can be useful ways of thinking about uh, uh, possibilities of female empowerment from within the tradition uh, rather than from a Western liberal conception of female empowerment and agency. So could you share with us a bit about uh, this uh, analysis that you conduct in your book about uh, critiques of Maududi's conception of gender and gender roles uh, and what kinds of critique were these and how you conceptualize them? Sure. Uh, let me preface uh, uh, this answer by saying that uh, on the issues of uh, gender equality, like many uh, modern philosophers such as Kant, Madhudi's exposition on women uh, question was heavily patriarchal. You know, you, you might uh, uh, recall this wonderful book by Jenny Lloyd. It was called The Man of Reason, Male and Female in Western Philosophy. And Lloyd shows the patriarchal nature of philosophy itself. So on many issues, Madhudi simply used theology to endorse uh, the societal prejudice of his in time. So in his view, uh, to take one example, women could vote in election, but they themselves could not become uh, prominent office bearers, for example, head of the state or prime minister. Uh, now, even though Madhudi had this general exposition, so we have to also see Madhudi in, in at least two ways, that as a thinker or as a writer, but at the same time, he's also an activist. 
So when it began to participate in election, uh, and in early 1960s, you had this uh, issue of uh, Fatma Jinnah, who uh, contested election for Pakistan's presidency. So on that occasion, Modudi justified this, uh, saying that uh, a woman could become uh, prime minister, okay? But he justified it on the doctrine of what is called uh, darura or necessity. So Modudi had to actually um, travel or find a line between at least two uh, opposing perspectives. On the one hand, he had people like Amin Hassan Islahi, who was earlier a comrade of Modudi. But when he uh, gave this new argument that, you know, as a Muslim, we could uh, vote for a woman to become prime minister and, and women could also become the head of the state, people like Amin Hassan Islahi, they accused him of... Uh, they accused him of being uh, a modernist or, or westernized intellectual and, and also that they have compromised with the basics of Islam itself. On the other hand, of course, you had people like uh, uh, what was known as modernist and they and Modudi had to grapple with their argument and these modernists, at least in theory, they believed in uh, gender equality. Now, critique of Modudi, which emerged from within, uh, it emerges from a very different reading of Islam. And some of these readings and are done by, or at least in the book, the ones that I focus on, these are male members of, of uh, Jamaat-e-Islami. And they think that Modudi's own framework on this issue was more ethnic rather than universalist because their idea is that if Modudi had taken a universalistic framework, then God would not make a distinction between men and women. Of course, there are biological differences, but that biological differences are not the ground for enforcing unequal law or depriving women of rights which are given to uh, which are given to men so their point was that the difference or at least from a quranic perspective they would say that the difference between men and women is based on the degree of piety or taqwa not because you are men and and women so in the eyes of god uh, the distinction would be made based on taqwa, not whether you are male or female. So this was uh, this was one of the uh, key arguments that the critics within Jamaat uh, leveled against um, against uh, Madhudi's patriarchal notion of 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 what uh, women, what kind of place women have uh, in the society. But let me also quickly say here that a lot of these changes or the critique emerged in a context where actually practices were already ahead of theorization. So what I mean by this, the societal landscape had significantly changed, you know. So as of now, if you think about Pakistan, for example, uh, 
the daughter of uh, former Amir of Jamaat Islam in Pakistan. She is a member of National Assembly. Now, that might be clearly against what Modudi had uh, said, you know. So, you see, practices themselves become the ground for such kind of uh, uh, transformation and in the in the work of critique on the issue of of the gender now one of the major uh, strengths of this book uh, is that it not only focuses on intellectual thought and textual uh, corpus and writings but it also talks about forms of critique in everyday life or uh, in sort of non-textual uh, registers. And to do that, you especially look at this very fascinating figure and movement uh, that I will have you introduce to our listeners in a moment. Uh, so could you share with us uh, this figure that you mentioned and talk about extensively towards the end of your book, uh, Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan and the uh, Khudai uh, Khidmatgar movement. Uh, could you uh, describe to us who was uh, Ghaffar Khan and what was this Khudai Khidmatgar movement for our listeners who may not be familiar? And then uh, share with us a bit about what modes of critical thought do we do we find in this in this movement that you that you uh, analyze? Thank you for this question. Um, yeah, as you rightly uh, noted, uh, much of the discussion about uh, about critique uh, somehow it always. Uh, begins with the assumption that you know critique is the domain of uh, of the intellectuals or the philosophers and uh, my uh, sub argument was that it is not simply the domain of philosophers and intellectuals or degree holders but how uh, a non educated or less educated or even uneducated person uh, is engaged in this exercise of critique and the focus on Ghaffar Khan um, enabled me to do this. And this is important to note because as you know, uh, unlike Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan or Muhammad Iqbal or Abul Kalam Azad or Hussain Ahmad Madni, Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan is not known as an Ali or as a scholar, right? So, so who was he? I mean, he was a person who was born in 1890, he lived for a long time, he died in 1988. Uh, but much of his activism was uh, uh, during the interwar period and he came from what might, what is, what was called then as Northwest Frontier Province, uh, which is a tribal area. So he was educated, uh, but not, not in the sense of um, established a scholar. So what struck him was the kind of tribal society that he, he lived in. He saw a lot of practices in his own society, uh, which according to him were not uh, just practices. So even though he was not um, very well educated, he had um, studied Islam and he was very much inspired by the message of, of the Quran and aspects of Prophet Muhammad's life. So there were two crucial things. Uh, the movement which he launched, and of course it was the time of the uh, colonial British rule. So one of his key concern was how to get freedom for people of India at large, but in particular about his own community which, 
which is called as Pashtun community or Pakhtun community. So in order to fight against the British, he thought that the use of violence is not what uh, Islamic teaching uh, has. So his main focus was that the fight against the British has to be non-violent. And he launched this movement, which was spectacular, like thousands and thousands of people became member. Uh, and and uh, even when the British uh, repressed this movement, uh, and that is reflected in the famous or infamous Qissa uh, Khani Bazar massacres, uh, where according to the official uh, figures, at least more than 100 people were killed. So even when uh, the shots were being fired, people simply said Allahu Akbar or they, you know, held uh, a copy of Quran to their bosom, but they did not retaliate. So, so Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan's idea was uh, that Islam teaches non-violence and the way he saw this movement was that the idea of sub and sub generally translated uh, it might mean patience but that actually is not the correct meaning uh, more appropriate meaning would be fortitude so the idea of sub is that you have to fight in the path of justice guided by uh, a faith in a transcendental being and you have to persevere in your fight you don't give it up even though uh, you have uh, problems and tribulations so uh, what we had in the form of this movement which was called khudai khidmatgar uh, which in english might be described as god's servant so this movement uh, was at that time especially in a very uh, tribal society where the rate of literacy was uh, probably not more than three or four percent so bulk of the movement was uh, it comprised of uneducated people so my whole point in this chapter is how we can think about Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan and his movement uh, most of whose followers were uneducated peasants and illiterate how they through their activism actually presented a critique of the British colonial order, but at the same time, a lot of practices which were rampant in that society. So Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan, as you know, he was also, for example, he sent his uh, daughter to a study at Allahabad University. Now, in 19, late 1920s and 19, uh, early 1930s, uh, for a society like uh, like uh, Northwest Frontier Province, for a woman to get a university education was considered something, uh, something not acceptable. So this entire movement in uh, for the freedom of of India as well as deployment of of sub and use of Islam as a source of inspiration. So my my point was to show that critique is not simply. Uh, an undertaking taken by the educated and the salaried philosophers, but how commoners like Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan and his followers also undertake critique. And it is not simply a textual thing, it is also a practice embodied in a social movement. So Irfan, as we're coming to the end of our uh, time, uh, could you share with us a bit uh, what uh, you're planning uh, as your uh, next uh, project? 
I mean, currently I'm working on, on two books. Uh, one is on democracy uh, and the other one is on terrorism. Uh, the one on democracy and election, it is uh, focused on 2014 elections in India. And uh, and uh, the other one on, on terrorism. So uh, as you know, in the past 15 years or so, uh, terrorism has been projected as the enemy of democracy. Now, through these two projects, I aim to examine uh, to what extent that is the case, you know? And uh, the question that I pose is very uh, James Baldwin type. As you know, James Baldwin was not so much interested in the question of who is the Negro, but who needs the category of Negro. So likewise, I'm asking uh, in this book uh, on terrorism, not what is terrorism or who is a terrorist, but who needs the category of terrorism or the terrorist. Uh, religion as a critique, Islamic critical thinking from Mecca to the marketplace by Professor Irfan Ahmed, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2017. Uh, thank you so much, Irfan, for your time, for coming to New Books in Islamic Studies and for sharing all these, or your, all your insights uh, and your analysis uh, of, from this book. I'm sure our listeners really uh, uh, would have benefited from your uh, erudite uh, uh, answers and analysis and so much thank you so much for this book also thanks so much thanks thanks for having it it was uh, lovely talking to you so this was my conversation with professor irfan ahmad on his new book is religion as critique islamic critical thinking from mecca to the marketplace thank you so much for listening and please also join us next time for another new and fresh episode of your favorite podcast, New Books and Islamic Studies, that operates online through the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Until next time, take care, stay well, and keep listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh-huh.